For Relay FM, this is Upgrade, episode 358, and today's show is brought to you by Hollow, Squarespace, and the Public Sector Future Podcast. My name is Mike Hurley, and I'm joined by Jason Snell. Hello, Jason Snell. Hello, Mike Hurley. I have a hashtag Snell talk question for you. Oh, okay. Comes from JD, and JD wants to know, do you use the swipe typing feature on your iPhone? Oh, oh, JD. Why you got to do this to me? Mostly not. Mostly not. I know it's there. It's great that it's there. I do occasionally use it, but um, mostly I I end up just sort of reverting to habit of uh, tappy typing. I'm a big swiper. Often what happens is that there's a word that I think, oh, I should swipe this word. And mm-hmm. I do. And mm-hmm. it, if it works, it encourages me to keep going. But there are also, there are also, I think I would need to really put some thought into it because there are some words that I find the swipe typing is really bad at um, that frustrate yes. me the, sh- the short words mm-hmm. so i i would need to build up like a system where i know there are certain ones that i type and certain ones that i swipe but i don't use my phone enough to put in that kind of time honestly right like my iphone as somebody who works at home and all that and and i don't even go out uh for runs or dog walks with my phone because i just bring my watch so i'm not using it enough i think to put in that kind of intense time i would probably push myself to use it more if I was doing lots of text input on my iPhone, but I'm not really. Yeah, I use swipe typing a lot. I think swipe typing is one of the many, but a big reason for why I have so many errors, especially when I text people because I'm swipe typing and not really paying attention. Uh, one, right. one of my favorite things about swipe typing is when you get like a particularly long or complicated word, like congratulations. It's almost like you're doing figure skating uh, yeah. with your fingers if you swipe type congratulations. Because not only is it long, the word is actually pretty nicely split out between both sides of the keyboard. So if you've never done this before, you know, you could just try swipe typing the word congratulations and you'll see what I mean. You really, you really go for it. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'm a big, I'm a big one uh, handed swipe typing person with my big phone. Swipe typing is really good for big phones. Uh, yeah. yeah. Very good for big phones. Yeah. And I'm on the iPhone uh, 12 mini, mm-hmm. which is uh, definitely not a big phone. Which, no, uh, I have, which I have brings something us to follow on top. Uh, <laughs> brings us to follow up. Here we are. We've reached follow up now. Thank JD for that? the hashtag Snell Talk question. If you'd like to send in one of your own to help us start the show, just send out a tweet with the hashtag Snell Talk or use question mark Snell Talk in the Relay FM members mm. Discord. Follow up. According to Taiwanese research firm Trendforce, production of the iPhone 12 mini has stopped earlier than would have been expected. It is, quote, end of life. Now, people may remember this if you've been around for long enough and have a good enough memory. End of life was a big phrase being thrown around a lot for the iPhone X because a similar thing happened with the iPhone X where it got, quote, end of life earlier than expected. And that basically just means Apple feel like they currently have enough inventory of this product to sell through its expected period of being available. Right, because um, it's going to be replaced, presumably. The rumors are that there will be a new Mini in the mm-hmm. fall, but not next year. That's the mm-hmm. current story. Um, and so if they've made enough now, you don't want to make excess, right? So they're, they're, they're done making They know it. how many they're selling. They know how many they expect to sell. And it's now reached a point where they have uh, stopped making them. However, this is sooner than you would have expected right. if the product was selling well. I don't like, I'm going to, I I suspect that I'm going to be holding on to whatever this coming falls model is for a while. Could be. If it's the, if it's the end of the line, because I do love it. 
um, it's it's perfect for me. I love it. But uh, yeah, this is uh, also the kind of thing that happens where, uh, you know, sometimes a product isn't ready to be replaced, but it stops being available on inventory, like, mm-hmm. or it's running out or it disappears. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, why aren't there any available right now? And the answer is that they, they've run out <laughs> because they're going to replace it. And it's because... This is the, this is the thing that we don't get a lot of insight into, but like Apple has so much complexity in their supply chain, and they're doing this stuff so far in advance in a lot of a lot of ways. And you don't want to build thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of phones, and then when you replace it with a new model, realize that you've got those hundred thousand phones and you know in the warehouse somewhere unsold. That's not great. That's super inefficient. Yep. So. They they seem to have figured that they've made enough. And the flip side of it is that um, story that we don't know if it's true or not, but it, it might be true that they uh, made so many HomePods in advance of shipping that product that they like they made too many and that they mm-hmm. were still selling from their initial run mm-hmm. after it was discontinued. So that's the flip side of misgaging. I think they're just yeah. gone now. And people are talking about you know Tim Cook is the is the killer of inventory. Like this is obviously Tim Cook's thing, right? This it is a global um production thing. This just in time uh supply chain management. It's we've seen like the pandemic disrupts it and then there's lots of problems because you don't have stuff in the queue. You just have everything right the moment you need it and if you don't get it then you can't make your product and all of that. But uh, I will say when Tim Cook took this over, like Apple was really bad at this before uh, Tim Cook and Steve Jobs sort of like made exerted an effort here. Apple used to have so much excess inventory, so m- many uh, weeks of inventory in the channel. Um, and, and that was a long time ago now. But like and I'm sure this is a trend again across all the industries that are out there that do all this kind of manufacturing stuff. But like that was like one of the things Tim Cook was very much brought in to do was Apple's supply chain was super inefficient. And and the result would be that they would they would have at any given time months more product than they that than they could sell out in the channel. Mm-hmm. So like you know, on any given day, if you wanted to buy two months worth of sales of Macs, you could do it because they were just sitting in boxes somewhere. And that's not great. That's, that's, you got to store them. You risk depreciation of, of the value if you cut the price or, or if you uh, discontinue it. Um, and that was Tim Cook's uh, thing. And Apple has obviously gotten really good at that now. Picture in Picture is finally making its way to the YouTube app on iOS. Uh, YouTube have announced and confirmed that it's rolling out now for all YouTube premium subscribers and then later on to all US-based users, free or uh, premium. There is unsure of a later international rollout. So the way this seems to be, um, I haven't gotten it yet, I keep checking. If you're a YouTube premium subscriber anywhere, they're going to give it to you. And if you're in the US, they will eventually do that for everybody. My understanding of why US is they've worked out a new advertising system, I believe, that will work with picture-in-picture. And my understanding is this is only working in the US right now and or they're still testing it. So they're just doing one market at a time and they're probably going for their most important market, which is the US. My 
my not knowing anything about how YouTube is put together, I'm just going to make a guess here, which is that the way that the YouTube web player works and the way the YouTube app player works as well is a, a thing where, you know, they've got a video file and then they've got some logic about the ad insertion and mm-hmm. then they stop playing the video file and play the ad. I think they're doing something more with like actually embedding ads in rather well, than... This know. is what I think is I think the current mm-hmm. way it works is that they've got a video file and they've got ads and that the players are doing the work. Yes. And that doesn't work with picture in picture Mm-mm. because picture in picture is taking a video stream and displaying it uh, and it's not a web page so it may be that their new system is actually you know dropping the ads right into the video stream i will just say as a long time youtube premium subscriber i actually think this is the best money that i spend on uh, a streaming service if you would call it that when I see a YouTube video of, with ads on it, I'm surprised. Because I've oh. been, since it became available, I have been a subscriber. Um, and what I like is that a lot of that money goes to the creators that I enjoy. Like, they get money from the YouTube Premium Program. Um, yeah, I, and I, I watch more YouTube than any other streaming service. So. Yeah, I I don't watch enough YouTube for it to be worth it for me. But whenever I do use YouTube, oh, the ads are bad. There's yeah. so many of them. And they're so disruptive. Yep. And I, I, you know, and, and then certain campaigns, depending on what target market you're in, will just repeat endlessly because yep. they've sold that campaign. And so you start to hate the people who are on the first, you know, unskippable portion of the ad. Um, and it's awful. But I don't use YouTube enough uh, to pay for premium. So there you go. Forensic Overtime. We spoke about this a while ago. The game from the Icon Factory is now available mm-hmm. via Apple Arcade. Um, it popped up i think on friday i've been playing it over the weekend uh i really love it so it's really good quick review for you the core gameplay if you remember the old forensic it's very similar it's faithful to the original they've modernized it in places they've added some variations in places but the core gameplay of you know you you it's like a matching game you know you you have like Almost imagine like a trivial pursuit, like the little pieces in a trivial pursuit circle. Mm-hmm. You have a bunch of these circles, you get different tiles and you have to match them together in colors and it's like there's some pattern matching stuff. It's it's very fun. Um they've added in power ups and this whole new game mode and stuff. But overall it's a very polished, more modern feeling version of the original. Easy recommendation for me, especially that because it's a part of Apple Arcade. So I, I really love it and I'm so pleased that they brought this game back and and made a new version of it. It's an absolute classic and this one lives up to it. Super good. Yeah, I I have had it for a few months. It is very good. It is yeah, it's an intense puzzle game, right? So it's you you have to um, you you don't sit back and think. <laughs> you have to react it's fast, quickly. You're always working um, against the, the timer. And as you would expect from the Icon Factory, yeah, so much of it is about like the sounds and the graphics and everything like that 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 makes it look really good. So mm-hmm. they did a great job. They did a really really great job. All right, should we catch up on some upstream headlines, There's Jason? A lot to catch up on. Yes, let's do it. All right, so there's a bunch of stuff that Apple's working on. They've got some more teaser trailers that they've been showing off. 
Uh, they have one which is just like a blanket summer teaser, which is doing a lot of work, really. Uh, there is some lots of quotes and stuff about all of the press reception and the critical acclaim that they've received so far. There's a bunch of clips for shows that are already, um, and movies that already exist. And then they're also showing stuff some for stuff that's coming on the service later this year. Um, like Invasion and the Foundation series. We see more of these than we've seen before. I'd forgotten mm-hmm. what Invasion was, um, and it is an alien invasion-focused uh, yep. science, uh, science fiction show. Yep. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff there, um, but they also had some extended trailers as well. Uh, one of the new ones is for The Shrink Next Door, which is right. the Will Ferrell, Paul Rudd, Catherine Hahn uh, show. Which looks like a movie, but it's a TV show. It's a limited it's a, series TV show. It's a mini series. Yeah, yeah, it's the it's really the they had an idea that was bigger than a movie. So the they made visuals a of it, though, like it looks so oh, yeah. beautiful. Like it looks movie quality. If you cut a movie trailer, you know, and said this is a movie, you would believe it. But yeah. it's it's not. But I, I think the distinction is literally that there are they're pulling it. You know, they're putting it out in in installments and it's longer than a movie would be, but otherwise it's indistinguishable from a movie. Yeah. I'm mega excited about this. Like I was excited about it anyway, because the cost is so good. Right. So it's just yeah. like, you know, Wolf Ferrell, Paul Rudd, like I'm in. Right. But the, I didn't really know a ton about the premise and it looks funny, but also like complicated and a yes. little bit dark. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm really excited about this show. I think it's going to be great. Yeah. Um, when I saw this, it made me think of something, you know, and I, I, we've said it on this show before, but for me, this really kind of solidified it, which is I can think that Apple has the real shot here of being the next HBO. I think that's the world that they're going to start playing in, like big stars, good content, compelling shows that you want to sign up for. I was thinking, um, and yeah, we talked about this quite a bit, that HBO in turning into HBO Max is becoming, you know, more stuff. Like there's still HBO, but HBO Max has really subsumed it. And so that means that HBO Max is also, you know, anime and it's also DC TV shows. And it's also friends, everything literally (laughs) and and it's friends reruns. Uh, It's literally all those things. Um, and Apple TV Plus, because they're basically just focusing on originals and not catalog stuff, feels more like original HBO. The other thing that struck me about this is there, and it's funny, and I know that this is not for everybody, but that's okay. Not everything is for everybody. But like I was on, we were looking for something to watch last night, and I was on Netflix. I was like kind of poking around there and i was thinking and, and saturday night too it was like maybe we want to watch a movie you know is there a tv show but i i was kind of open to whatever and what i noticed is that on hbo max and hulu and especially netflix there's so much content that it's overwhelming and even when you go down to like netflix originals there's so much that it's overwhelming. And honestly, I don't think Netflix does a very good job of marketing their stuff. I know they've got the algorithms. They've got the data. They're programming our brains to figure out what we want to watch next. But the problem with that is like in terms of like really showing off the stuff that they think that that's original and that they presumably think that I will like, 
you know, it's just a, they have like one featured area, but like it's just a bunch of little tiles. It's just not that interesting. And I went over to Apple TV Plus, to the TV app, into the Apple TV Plus tab, right? And what I admired about it was because they don't have that much stuff, they just have their originals and it's a limited amount. It felt way more focused. Mm-hmm. I felt like I could get a really good sense of what was on offer at any particular time. And then from that, I could choose, is there something I want to watch? And I guess what I'm saying is there's an argument to be made that focus and simplicity is a feature. And that even if Apple only has a fraction of the original content that Netflix has, it's there's something to be said for having sort of like picked their lane a little bit. And again, they're appealing to a bunch of different people, right? Like Ted Lasso and C and the morning show and the shrink next door. And like, they're trying to do a bunch of different stuff, but still like HBO tried to do that too, but like still kind of, kind of goal is high quality, kind of prestige TV. Um, and uh, limited selection, so you know who they are and what they've got on offer. And I, I don't know. I find some. I find that valuable. I think that that when you end up releasing as much stuff as Netflix does, um, it kind of devalues all of it. And certainly in the app, like the only way that I know what to watch on Netflix at this point is friends of mine recommending things. Because if I had to look, if I had to stumble upon it in Netflix, I never would. There's a new Ted Lasso trailer. Came out yeah. today. Mm-hmm. Another season two. We had a little teaser, and now there's a little, uh, another little glimpse at what the. I'd actually say, if you really want to go into Ted Lasso season two, not knowing what's going on, uh, maybe don't watch it because it's Ted Lasso. It's all recognizable, but I think it, I suspect it gives away a bunch of what's going to happen in season two. I was able from one viewing to think about a lot of it. Yeah, I watched it, and I, I wouldn't. If you know you're going to watch the show. Uh, I wouldn't recommend watching it. But maybe more exciting is the Ted Lasso merch, official merch store opened today as well. Uh, this is confusingly on the Warner Brothers website. Now, Ted Lasso is very complicated licensing-wise, mm-hmm. and Warner Brothers is one of the companies that's involved in the distribution and creation of the show, and they have everything. They have personalized jerseys and hoodies and mugs and glasses and hoodies and a blanket and stickers and everything. They have so much stuff, uh, but I actually kind of like it because there's something for everyone, and this is not the amount of merch that would exist, I think, if if Apple were running the merch store. Uh, sure. Of course, I have no idea what the quality of it's like, but you figure it's probably got to be okay, right? You imagine like a company like Warner Brothers probably has a pretty decent merch operation at this point. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to poke around this. I'm definitely going to buy something, uh, but I don't know what it is yet yeah so there you go it's finally uh although what they say they say that there's more to come because like there are no uh afc richmond like there's one jersey i guess yeah and you can personalize it with your name on it which is cool yeah it's funny it doesn't have the uh it doesn't have the fake sponsor no <laughs> yeah i right. wonder about that kind of stuff new but. new fake in fact among the things in the trailer i was like oh they have a new fake uh shirt sponsor 
And I think, uh, you know, there's probably, I actually thought to myself, there's probably a, at least a joke, if not a plot line about that. And I've now been spoiled on it because I saw the trailer, but anyway, don't watch the trailer. It's fine. It's dead last. So it's coming back. Don't watch the trailer. Take a look at the merch. Yeah. It's very fun. The Apple TV Plus free trial is dropping from one year to three months. If you buy a product, you've always gotten a year of Apple TV Plus. That's now going to be three months of Apple TV Plus. It starts in July, a.k.a. Ted Lasso season. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is also actually, believe it or not, when the initial trial period will finally be coming to an end. (sighs) Yep. So this is the free trial that we've all been on uh, since it started. It's been extended, 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 and it's it's actually coming to an end in July. Uh, and it's kind of funny, really, because I think the initial thinking that we all had was like, oh, that's going to come to an end in time for For All Mankind, in time for The Morning Show. But now right. it's ended up being for Ted Lasso. For Ted right? Lasso. <laughs> it's not necessarily what we would have expected. Yeah. but And, the, you know, and The Morning Show is coming after that and all of that. Mm-hmm. But yes, yeah. They're clearly doing it in July for that, right? Like, that's why. Because, like, you know, morning show's September, and they've got a bunch of other stuff coming mm-hmm. up this year. Disney Plus is committing to Wednesday releases for their original content shows going forward. Yeah. This change was made after Loki became the most popular premiere to date. Yeah, it's... they So they, they put Loki... Obviously, they were thinking about this because yeah. they scheduled Loki... On a Wednesday, although they they have like the Bad Batch is running and that was on Friday. So they had some other stuff that was rolling out on Fridays, but they pushed Loki out on Wednesdays. And the result was that um, it was very successful. And they they said the most popular premiere of a show that they've had. I think it was going to be that way wherever it was, whatever day of the week they brought it out. I think so. But they wanted to experiment. And and Mm -hmm. it's a funny thing. You know, TV scheduling is weird. Um, in the U.S., traditionally, the big day that everybody wanted to schedule shows, their biggest shows, was Thursday. And that was not necessarily because it was the day that was the most watched, um, but because it was the day where uh, the all of the money for ads for movies for the weekend would run. Um, and so that was that was the most lucrative day. And that's why you wanted your biggest shows to be programmed on Thursdays is because all the movie studios would come in with their ads for the movies for the weekend on a Thursday because Friday they're out seeing movies and over the weekend. Um, it used to be in the U.S. that like Saturday and Sunday were the biggest TV viewing days. And now Saturday is a complete dead zone. So now in the streaming world, we're remaking the weekly schedule. Um, Netflix drops everything on Friday. Apple drops everything on Friday. There's a real logjam of content on Friday. Mm-hmm. And um, so this is really interesting because it's Disney saying, we're going we're gonna to back it up to Wednesday. It's weird because it means like we had our you know Friday night Mandalorian night and now Loki is, is Wednesday and now all the other Disney stuff is going to be on Wednesday too, I guess. Um, I sent you when this was going on a couple of tweets by TV critic Alan Sepinwall, who's at Rolling Stone, and he made the point, which I think is spot on, that ultimately what's going to happen is different shows are going to have different release days and yes. we're going to go back to the world of network TV essentially replicated on streaming, which is different stuff's going to come out on different days. And on Tuesdays you get, for weekly releases especially, because the the great thing about a weekly release show having a certain day is 
it's appointment television because people want to watch it on the day uh, and talk about it. Like if it's really uh, a big, you know, word of mouth kind of thing. And the reason you do a weekly release is because you want people talking about it week to week. So for now, all the Disney stuff is going to be on Wednesday and that's fine. But I, I look for look for different services to experiment this with a little a little bit more. Um, obviously, HBO Max, because HBO has air dates on their linear channel for their their shows, those release weekly on a certain date. But what I noticed is that even their originals are releasing on a date. We watched Hacks, which is a really good show, by the way, on HBO Max. And it's an HBO Max original uh, comedy, uh, eight episodes, 10 episodes, really great show. Um, highly recommended, actually. Uh, and it it had a weekly two episodes a week because it's a comedy, and so they they drop two a week weekly Wednesday release schedule. And even better than that, when you pressed play, it said new. It had a little title card that came up before the show starts, and it says "Hacks, new episodes Wednesdays." It's like yes, remind me <laughs> to be here on Wednesday for new mm-hmm. episodes. And it totally worked. So it's fascinating to watch this happen and to see companies like Netflix roll in and say, oh, we're going to change everything. We're just going to drop everything in a binge watch on a Friday and just take over the weekend. And that's what we're going to do. And then you've seen other services go, well, what if we experiment with some different stuff? And I suspect that you are going to end up with something that looks a little more like what network television used to look like than you would you would have maybe guessed from what Netflix is doing. Because I think they're actually, just as I am a firm believer that there is power in releasing things weekly, because we talk about it as it's going on instead of having Netflix sort of just sweep in, drop it, and then go away again. But I think that there's also power in making that appointment. And your release day is the appointment that you're making. And with The Mandalorian, it was Friday. With Loki, it's Wednesday. What will come next? You know, I don't know. But I like, I really like that idea of saying we're releasing this weekly and you can get it on Tuesday or whatever that day is. That's, uh, I, I, I like it because a weekly release is an appointment making release schedule. So you should do that. This episode is brought to you by Hello. Hello make incredibly comfortable buckwheat pillows. These are very different to your regular fluffy pillows. Buckwheat pillows have a inherent support that they provide because they're not fluffy, it's not feather, it's little buckwheat hulls. These they're almost I think close to like tiny shells or like beans in a bean bag. It's closer to that really, but also not like those things, but they're the closest things I could kind of compare them to. What this does is a bunch of really great things compared to a regular pillow. So one, it supports your head and neck way better than a regular pillow. It doesn't collapse under the weight of your head. It's hello pillows stay super cool and dry because air can flow through more easily. They breathe better. So you don't have that flipping to the cool side of the pillow kind of thing because your pillow always stays cool. Because it's a filling that's easy to deal with, you can add and remove it to so the pillow could be the exact size and shape that you want it to be. I absolutely love my hollow pillow. I've slept on one every night for multiple years now, and I'm never going to go back. I love the support that I get. I find it super comfortable. It's really easy to kind of just put the pillow down, squeeze it once, put my head down on it, and that's it. It's not like it doesn't like I put my head down on it and my head hits the mattress. Like I don't deal with any of that. I get the support that I want. I find it super comfortable. Really, it just 
fantastic. Everything's made super well. I love it. Hollow pillows are made in the USA of quality construction and materials. The certified organic cotton case is cut and sewn for durability. And the buckwheat is grown and milled in the US as well. I'm expecting you probably be pretty curious to try one of these out. And you can. You can sleep on it for 60 nights. And if it isn't for you, just send it back and you'll get a full refund. Go to hollowpillow.com slash upgrade to get your own buckwheat pillow today. That's hollowpillow.com slash upgrade. And if you buy more than one, they have a special discount of up to $20 off depending on the size that you opt for. They have fast free shipping of every order and 1% of all profits are donated to the Nature Conservancy. So give it a try. If you love it, you keep it. If you don't, you just send it back. Go to hollowpillow.com slash upgrade upgrade right now that's hollow pillow h-u-l-l-o-p-i-l-l-o-w.com slash upgrade a thanks to hollow for the support of this show and relay fm so mark Gurman posted a report last week about a the future of the apple watch mm. so this year's watch will call it the series seven just for the sake of conversation sure. uh should be outfitted with the following faster processor obviously Sure. Improved wireless. <laughs> That's all the report says. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming not 5G, probably Wi-Fi 6, right? I I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I don't think they could deal with the battery drain of 5G in the product. Of Seems that unlikely, size. right? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't seem very likely to me. Uh, thinner know. display borders... And again, this is sometimes, so we've already had this with two points. You have to look at what is not said to try and work out what is said. Right. right. So like improved wireless, we can only, we assume is something probably Wi-Fi related. Right. Or Bluetooth. Or Bluetooth. Be? Yeah, it could be Bluetooth. But, but I don't know, like, is there better Bluetooth? I don't know, maybe. Uh, like thinner display borders. Does that mean a larger screen? Hmm. Right, are they are they expanding the screen or shrinking the border? Which do you think they'd be more likely to do out of those two? Shrink the border. Yeah, I think so too, because they only just changed that the screen size like two years ago. You wouldn't wanna bifurcate that again, right? When especially I, it, when yeah. they're still keeping the the uh series three around, it seems like. <laughs> yeah, I e- app design and development would have to completely change which is not to say that they won't do that but it seems like it, it, there's a little bit of a barrier there like, i know that a lot of why, developers why make trouble <laughs> that focus on the apple watch were really surprised to see that the series 3 will continue to be supported with watch os 8 you know like it, it feels like at a certain point apple have to draw the line and it's not now well they have to support hardware that they're selling though is the problem so even if they stop selling the series three or the se or whatever all of that old tech they could stop once they stop selling it all they can stop supporting it after a certain oh right it could be that way around maybe they stop selling it this year but right they've got old tech that they're still selling and Mm -hmm. so they still have to support it for a while even though they probably shouldn't be selling it but they are so we'll see that that to me is going to be one of the big questions about uh the apple watch this fall is just like are they going to change their low-end strategy are they finally going to put push some of that old hardware out of the market is the is the se going to be more of what we thought it was going to be last year and ended up not being where it's like it's the low-end watch except for the other one that's lower so i i'm um, curious what they if they change their approach there or not 
Well, let's pause talking about this Series 7 and talk about the SE for a minute. Because okay. one detail in this report is that there is a new SE model coming in 2022, that the SE mm-hmm. will not be revised in 2021. Yeah. I wouldn't expect it to be because they just announced it. I think I'm more wondering if they will drop um, their cheap old watch and lower the price of the existing SE to fill that role rather I than selling. I think that's what they need to do. Because that's, that's what we all assumed last year. And, and honestly, when, when you look at it, it looks to me like that was the intent. And then they realized they couldn't get away with it. Like they couldn't do that and keep the margins where they wanted them. So they kept selling the Series 3. So it could be that this year we see them finally get down there with the SE mm-hmm. and kick the Series 3 to the curb. And then next year there's a new SE in order to kind of keep the keep refreshing that model. Because, yeah, clearly, I don't see how anybody can look at, we're selling a 6, an SE, and a 3, and think that that was what they wanted to do. Um, I mean, and when I say that, it's very much like they wanted to do that, but but the asterisk is, and make the profit margins that they expect on the product, yeah. and set up the price that they expect. Uh, and they couldn't do it it looks like they overshot a little that the se was a little too ambitious for 2020 so maybe for 2021 the se can get there and then i think going forward i would not be surprised if there's always an se that i mean that's that's a classic tim cook apple kind of model model which is we've got a new model that's kind of old tech but it's but it's new just kind of old and then we've got the old the the super new model that is actually new um, but that's, you know, the SE is, I think, a much more appealing product name and concept than the Series 3, right? Which is literally, it's just an old watch. Um, so yeah. uh, we'll see if it At least it, it, it looks, dies. currently, looks like the new yeah. one. They can't sell the Apple Watch Series 3 up until the day that they finally release the new version of WatchOS that doesn't support it. And then yeah, go like, no, whoops, right. well, you're stuck, I got that right? wrong. So, it's, it's the other way around. You want to see them get yeah. rid of Series 3 this year so they can drop the support for, of, in WatchOS 9, maybe, or WatchOS 10. Yeah. But hopefully WatchOS 9 for developers. Ooh. But like, I've said this WatchOS before. 10, I'm just imagining a big X. Oh, uh, watch your SX. I mean, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I mean, it's probably one of these things that frustrates people because I say it too often. But I think that the SE is is a bad product. Like the in its current guise, I think it's too expensive for what you get. Right. Especially yeah. considering well, the Series Three is out there. Clear. Clearly, they thought that they were gonna hit the yep. Series Three price, they messed and up. they failed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, like, it's, try again it's in the a fall? Series Four. Right for yeah. three hundred and twenty nine dollars, like I don't know. It, it, the, it, I was there's so many things that it, it, the Apple Watch SE does not have that you think that it would have. Like it doesn't have the ECG, doesn't have an always on Retina display. Like, but it still costs three hundred and thirty dollars. Like it's it's it's. I just find that too expensive. It's too expensive, but yeah. it is sensible to have a product in the cheaper lineup oh yeah for all of the things that they no spoke about, about when they announced the se was like that whole family thing it's just whatever they calibrated is what they could do and and i think part of the problem is that they made a tech transition right they changed the display size they did a bunch of stuff that mm-hmm. means there's a divide between series three and series four yep and so you end up in this position where you're like, well, what we want to do with the SE is make a cheap version of our modern platform. And they did that, but they couldn't make it cheap enough 
to satisfy what they wanted as their base price point for the Apple Watch. And so they kept the last version of the old platform around way... I mean, and, and we're not even getting into the fact that, like, uh, I don't know if we talked about it here or not, but as as I know several people who have a Series 3, and, like, Apple has... has there were a series of problems, right, where it wouldn't do a software update because it said there wasn't enough space available. And... Uh, Apple finally just changed their tech note to say, if you want to update the software, you just need to erase the watch and start again. <laughs> and it's like, it should not be for sale. That product should not be continue yep. to be sold. It, there's so no, old. there's no way. So um, old. And, and so actually speaking of inventory, I wonder if one of the reasons that they're still selling it is they made too many, but um, <laughs> ri- <laughs> right. And they're like, oh, just keep selling them, sell them until they're gone. But uh, clearly, the SE is what they want that watch to be, and and but it's based on the new stuff, and it clearly costs more than they were willing to uh, eat in pricing it down at the price that they're selling the Series Three. So we'll we'll have to see what they do there, because mm-hmm. what you want is it to be good but not cutting edge. You want it to be cheaper, like. But instead of it being a three-year-old watch, what you want it to be is sort of like the decontented version of the current watch, right? You want it to just be sort of like current watch light um, rather than it being, you know, just old, ancient old model continue to be sold, right? Because that SE, the idea there is that the SE doesn't feel as old as Series 3, where you're like, you're literally, we're saying in the name, you're three behind where everybody else is right now. It's not so great. Just want a quick bit of real time follow up from Zach in the Discord. Uh, three twenty nine is the GPS and cellular version of the SE. It starts at two seventy nine. Uh, still too expensive compared to the three ninety nine or four ninety nine Series Six, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, I think it's still too much. So going back to the Series Seven, uh, as well as a change in the uh, the way that the screen looks, we expect thinner borders by making it smaller. Apple's working on a new screen lamination technique to bring the display closer to the glass. I remember this was a big deal for the iPhone, like whenever they would do that, like it, it, it made the display look so much better because it felt like it was closer to what you were touching. Um, so I bet that looked cool. I don't feel this about the Apple Watch, though. I just don't, I don't feel like the Apple Watch is deep down beneath a layer of glass. Now, yep. maybe if with a thinner you know laminated display you end up with something that feels more tactile but to me i feel like the illusion's pretty good as it is i have another theory here which is this could just be a way to get the display portion to be thinner so that they can pack some other stuff in or yeah. make the watch thinner however german's report says it's slightly thicker mm-hmm. so that leads me to believe that maybe the lamination is less about trying to get a more visible screen and more about reducing that portion of the thickness so that they can, because they've got some other thing that they're doing, whether it's uh, battery or other kind of watch tech to that that is going to bloat the thing. And they're like trying to shave off in other areas in order to get it to be back down. Cause I would, I would say, I don't, I have never considered the Apple watch too thick. It is chunky, but it works okay for me. But like I would, not mind it being thinner right <laughs> and it's not it has not gotten thinner it, it has gotten a little bit more bulky and that's the that's the the report here from mark german is that that's going to happen again it's like i i feel like they're pushing it at some point you know at some point it gets to be too much i think 
I have another random piece of real-time follow-up, but I want to address it for all the people that will have tried to tweet us so far, and I just did just confirm it. The Ted Lasso merch is US only, which sucks. Oh. That's yeah. so bad. Warner Brothers, shame on you, Warner Brothers. Yes. Yeah. What's that so. about? But that, that slight thickness, I mean, it, I don't want to keep saying it, but maybe it is for 5G. <laughs> Pick a battery in I, there. I don't know. For 5G, they made the screen thinner so they can get more space inside. I don't know. Um, in regards to sensors, again, this report is more about things Apple wanted or are working on than what will be in the Series right. 7. Because so. Mark Gurman talked to people who knew what they were working on and that it didn't make it in, right? <laughs> like the yep. behind the scenes is people who were like, uh, we couldn't get that in. And they're sad and they talked to Mark Gurman about it. Body temperature sensor pushed to 2022. That one seems really logical to me. I, I know that it must be difficult to do that, but um, it would be nice. And it's it's right up against your skin, right? It would be really nice if if it could say not only chart your body temperature, maybe, but also alert you if your body temperature is out of uh, is out of norm. And that that's like feels genuinely super useful, like one you could use. Like more people would get more frequent use out yeah. of than a heart sensor or the blood oxygen, right? And, and I'm thinking of the applications of it. I'm not a doctor, obviously, but not not only is it like you might be running a fever, mm -hmm. but you could warn against heat stroke. Mm -hmm. You could warn against hypothermia. Mm -hmm. Like there's all sorts of things you could potentially do beyond just you might, you know, are you feeling okay? <laughs> you might have a fever, uh, have some chicken soup, that kind of the mother, the mom feature of the Apple Watch. There's other stuff you could probably do with that too. So that's interesting. And um you know, but I, I get it that you've got a fixed position on a wrist and you've got to infer, in you've got to measure uh, lots of stuff using a very limited amount of space that's in a very particular part of the body. And I, that's a hard problem. I get it. They also want to include something for blood sugar sensing. This is something yeah. Apple's working on, but is years away. That seems really complicated. We we uh, heard about this uh, one of these times we've been talking about prospective mm -hmm. Apple Watch features. Somebody was saying about how, you know, there is a lot of research going into blood sugar sensors for diabetics. And, uh, you know, the technology is improving. But, you know, to compact all of that down into something that you wear on your wrist is a... Uh, that's a hard problem. Like it's a hard problem for dedicated blood sugar monitors for diabetics to solve that stand alone, let alone a hard problem to put in an Apple Watch. So, but I get the appeal, right? I mean, Apple, look, Apple wants this thing to be a tricorder, like from Star Trek. Apple wants the Apple Watch to sit on your wrist and know everything it can possibly know about your health. And the challenge with that is that it is sitting on the back of your wrist and that's not necessarily the best place to get all of, collect all that data. And that is why there will probably be other accessories. We talked at one point, I think we talked about uh, AirPods as a potential sensor yeah. for Apple health. And I, I was thinking about that regarding, regarding this story because you could argue, like like Apple's gate detection that it's talking about doing in iOS 15, that's an Apple, that's an iPhone feature, right? And I think there's something to that, that it's like, it's in your pocket um, and, and there's detection that it can do there that is interesting. Um, and, and AirPods, I think about like, it wouldn't surprise me at all if at some point down the road, Apple started looking at AirPods as another sensor surface 
for Apple Watch. And if you don't have Apple Watch, maybe it logs that data to your iPhone and it does something with it. But like, it's really starting to think of all of its products that touch your body as being uh, surfaces that could be used to detect personal medical data. And I, I think that's going to continue. I think that anything mm-hmm. that Apple does, uh, if, if they make glasses and that they're on your temples, they're going to be like, oh, well, we're touching the temples. We're touching their forehead. We can learn things there too. Because I think ultimately that's what Apple wants is be, even beyond the Apple Watch is to uh, find ways to measure things about your body and then use intelligence on device to help you with whatever you know they can help you with. And I think they've had such success with the Apple Watch and its health application that it will be wild for them to not put that into more products if they can, right? Especially if there's an application for it. If they're like, oh, if only, oh, there's this feature we want to add to the Apple Watch and we just can't do it because the wrist is a terrible place for it. But you know what a good place to measure somebody's temperature is inside their ear, Mm-hmm. And they're like, get the get the AirPods people on the phone. We're going to put a thermometer in the AirPods and the AirPod. And that's that's another example of Apple, the way Apple is run. Apple thinking kind of holistically about its products. Where if you were just making uh, wireless earbuds, you would not put a temperature sensor in them. But if you're Apple, you're thinking big picture, which is ah, uh, the Apple Watch could really use the temperature sensor from the AirPods. There's also an extreme sports option of the Apple Watch planned for 2022, along with a new SE. There had previously been a rumor about a more rugged Apple Watch, and I guess that's this. What do you think about how this would be branded? Like, do you think that this would be a separate watch like the SE, or could it be like a part of like Series 8? And You know, they have two. My feeling is that this is the equivalent of materials options that this is the equivalent of offering it in stainless steel or titanium right is that they'll offer a ruggedized option of if it was just like a rubber version of the apple watch yeah i mean i i don't i don't think that's beyond the realm of possibility right basically you take the uh the core of the apple watch but you put it in something different this would probably also you know this would break band compatibility it would probably have an integrated band right and just be this super rugged kind of g-shocks thing Mm -hmm. but that's okay right like i think i think that is a, a great new territory for apple watch to go is is uh specializing it like this and i that would be how i'd argue you know, you roll it out is like literally you're now going to make an Apple Watch Extreme or whatever version of your current Apple Watch, just like you make a titanium version or a stainless steel version and you buy it and you get it and it comes in that form. And it's just, it's the same watch bits, but the container is made of different material. And up to now, the different material has been the same shape, uh, just different uh, metals. But it would be very, I don't want to say very easy, but you could see how it would be a parallel development for them to to take this. So that would be my guess, is that if they want to do a sport, like an extreme sport, rugged version of the Apple Watch, that um, this is what it would be. And maybe they also vary the glass, right? They vary the glass on the mm-hmm. top. So that would be another thing where they would probably put the, you know, the most rugged uh uh, glass on top of it and then they'd have the ruggedized container for it but ultimately i think it would still be a series seven so while we're talking about the watch um john prosser had a report in late may that there is um, some more details on the design and that the apple watch would be the next apple product to feature a flat edge design 
with the possibility of a green Apple Watch, um, mm-hmm. but potentially more colors like the iMac. What do you think of Flat Edge coming to that product as well? I don't. I don't know. I mean, the Apple Watch design hasn't changed at all in the what seven years? Yeah, like the kind of the announced? general case design. You know, all they did was change the way the screen looked. I suppose. Right, right, but like it's maintained all compatibility and it looks the same. It, mm-hmm. it, that you look at the original Apple Watch and you look at the current Apple Watch and like it's Apple Watch. Um, two arguments there, right? One is it's old, time for something new. The other argument is it is iconic at this point. It is recognizably what an Apple Watch looks like, and when you see one, you go, "Up, oh, Apple Watch." Like every time I'm watching a TV show or something, I'm like, "There, Apple Watch, there it is!" Right? It's just you can you can see it and you know it, and that mm-hmm. has power. So I don't I don't know. Um, also, uh, look, I'm not a watch person, so I don't know about there. There's so many different kinds of watch design out there. Maybe a iPhone and iPad and you know and new i i mean they're all going in that direction right new iMacs all that the the flat sides thing maybe that would look great on a watch and if so it would certainly fit into the sort of design family of apple's products um maybe it wouldn't i mean it's a round wrecked right like it would be what would it look like if it was if it was shaped differently what would it feel like on your wrist to have kind of a flat uh a flat side instead of a little curvy side i don't know um it's probably beyond my capacity as somebody who is not uh, up on watch design. I'm open to the idea that they would change the Apple Watch design. I think at some point they probably have to evolve it. But mm-hmm. I also think like they've come this far establishing that Apple Watch looks like this and that there's a danger in going away from it at this point. What do you think? You, you care about watches? Yeah, I think flat edges is fine. You know, like the watch I'm wearing today, I mean, it's round, the face is round, but it's the way the case attaches to the back of it is a right angle, you know? And so that that's, I think that's perfectly fine. Uh, I think it's needed. I think that the Apple Watch has looked too similar for too long. Hmm. And I think they need to start changing the design up a bit. I mean, I stand by the fact that I still want a round Apple Watch because I just don't like the, the, the square, like rectangular shape anyway. Like I just prefer a round shape. I would prefer a round shape. Um, I would like to see them changing a little bit more about what the Apple Watch looks like rather than just the bands that you attach to it or the color of the cases. Um, I think it's I think it's time for some change uh, there, personally. I don't know what I feel about you know flat edge design uh if they're gonna make it look like a flat edge from an apple product it could be kind of cool if they do like some of the shinier uh finishes that they've had on some of the pro phones could be interesting um i'd be intrigued to see what they would do with it could it make it potentially look too much like a computer maybe um but i would like to see them do something a little bit more for me personally the the kind of like rounded design on the apple watch just kind of feels old now um in in a way that i don't find appealing i think that's i think that's the give and take and honestly i think that that is an interesting dilemma for apple because i think um it does provide them with familiarity that's actually powerful for a lot of users and for potential buyers um 
but it's also been around a long time. And so other people are going to have a reaction like you have, which is it's boring and it's old and give me something new. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure where Apple Watch is in its life cycle in terms of uh, people who look at it like you do versus people who look at it and there's value in having it be recognizable and familiar. Are they building, you know, so many new buyers that that's more important to them is sort of like, or or would they have a huge you know sales boost by offering it in a different uh, different shape? There's also the question of like would they do would they do both? Uh, I have a hard time believing that they would offer the same watch in like two styles. But I just said that they could do an extreme sports version. So you know could they do actually two different case styles of the same model watch? That's a possibility. It seems unlikely, but you know never say never. Um, it's funny that you mentioned the circular face Um, when you earlier mentioned like what do you think about the display borders changing and would they change the screen size i feel like there's so much development challenge in in uh dealing with the screen size and it's not just app developers like app developers are going to figure it out but it's also apple's own software development Mm -hmm. where every time you change the screen size you have to support like when they change the screen size um like they left a whole bunch of watch faces that they had designed for the smaller screen size basically behind and have not updated them. And they're like, oh, well, that's just where those are old and they use the old stuff. And now we're like, they couldn't be bothered to update all their faces to be on the new screen size, right? Like, so it's a challenge for Apple when they change the screen size, which is why what I think is um, I would never change the screen size on uh, incrementally on the existing screen template. I would save that. I would I would save I would keep my gunpowder dry because a circular display is really interesting and would require a lot of work to support. Yeah, you gotta start over. Yeah. So if you're if you're gonna go there, you gotta lay the foundation for that and then you gotta put in a lot of work to go there. Um and and I think I actually think they will go there eventually, because how could you not? Um, the circular, you know, circular watch face is such a uh, classic and common kind of thing. Especially when it's not like Apple don't try their best to make their watch faces look like real watches. They try very hard, yeah. almost to a fault sometimes, of making their computer watch look like an analog watch. Right. So why not go the last step? <laughs> yeah. So I'm not. I'm not saying that. That's. Uh, you know. I think that we have. I see no reports that Apple is is readying a circular no. Apple Watch, but I I think it's inevitable. I think it'll be a few years, and I think that they will um they will do it when they're they feel ready to offer a circular version of you know everything they do and guidelines for developers about how to deal with a, a non rectangular screen and all that. But I, I I think in the short run, you know, I think it's going to be. Uh, a fun question because I do I see both sides I see the desire to make something that looks new and also the advantages of having something that looks familiar in a new product category yeah this episode is brought to you by Squarespace the all-in-one platform to build your online presence and run your business from websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics Squarespace has you covered they combine cutting-edge design and world-class engineering to make it easier than ever to establish your home online and make your ideas a reality 
Whether you want to turn your big idea into a new website, showcase your work with incredible portfolio designs, publish your next blog post, promote your business, announce an upcoming event, and so much more, Squarespace has everything you need to create a beautiful and modern website for it. You start with one of their beautiful templates, they're all professionally designed, and you just use drag and drop tools to customize it and make it your own. You can customize the look, the feel, the settings, or even the products that you have on sale with just a few clicks, and every Squarespace website is optimized for mobile as well. You'll get free unlimited hosting, top-of-the-line security, dependable resources with nothing to patch or upgrade, support from an award-winning 24-7 customer support team. They'll even let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name and take advantage of SEO and email marketing as well. Go and try it out for yourself right now. Go to squarespace.com upgrade and you can sign up for a free trial of no credit card required. You can build your whole website with this uh, trial and you can really go in, tinker with it and make it feel like your own. This is a thing I've been doing for years. I've been setting up Squarespace websites for I think 10 years or more at this point. When I have something that I want to get online, I don't want to spend a ton of time trying to make that work. I know how to use Squarespace because it's easy and I can get my idea out there super fast. Then when you're ready to launch your website to the world, use the offer code UPGRADE and you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com upgrade. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code UPGRADE and you'll get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for the show. Our thanks to Squarespace for the continued support of UPGRADE and Relay FM. So Apple has announced their returning to work plan for its employees. Mm -hmm. They're doing three-day weeks in the office starting in September with this hybrid approach running until 2022 at the earliest, which is only three months if they can in January, but it will be for review, potentially to last longer. They're going to see how it goes. The set days in the office for people at Apple Park and probably in some of their other locations is Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday with the option to work from home on Wednesdays and Fridays. You can go into the office if you want to, but you don't have to. Employees also get the option for two full weeks of at-home working per year. What did you think of this plan when you heard it? Honestly, I was disappointed by it. Okay. I... Look, I, I'm going to do all the disclaimers here up front. I work in my own garage now, but I worked for several decades at an office with where I commuted every day. Um, so I've, and I hired people and I hired remote people and I hired people in the office. It's like, I've, I've seen all the sides of it. Um, and I want to say that there, are, I, I do not think that every job can be remote. I, I don't believe that. I am sure that there are lots of jobs at Apple that really do require people being in the office for various reasons, right? Um, there, what the pandemic taught us, though, is that there are certainly some jobs that don't. And it's not just the ones where it's obvious that, that you don't need to be in an office, but the corporate culture demands that you would be. But also what we learned with the pandemic is that there are some jobs that seemed like they couldn't possibly be done remotely mm-hmm. that could be done remotely. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm reminded of, of the fact that um, the entertainment industry discovered that all sorts of video editors and VFX artists could literally do their jobs from their house, which, you know, I think culturally there was like, well, the computers and the power, you know, all of that stuff and the, the, the size of the files and like all that stuff, you just have to be in the office. Um, 
and some of that was a legacy of back when computers weren't as powerful and network connections weren't as fast. Uh, and some of it was that they just hadn't tried it. But I, I know for a fact that a lot of people in that industry made it work during the pandemic, not necessarily doing all of their renders and edits on their own computers at home, but using remote access software to control a powerful computer uh, in a data center or at the office somewhere and sitting at home and doing the work remotely and that they made that work just fine. So like there's a bunch of different levels here. There's the stuff that probably should have been remotable from the beginning and wasn't. There's the stuff that we thought wasn't possible that we found out it was. And then there's the stuff that maybe we managed to muddle through, but we lost something. It was less efficient. You know, it wasn't as good. I think all of those things exist. So the problem I have, and again, I don't, I don't work at Apple, and I also don't know the purpose of Tim Cook's message. Tim Cook's message may indeed be the base model message, which is everybody at Apple gets this, but individual groups beyond this can decide policies. Like it doesn't it, seem I, it like that's the case. It, it, yeah. It, so here's this is the challenge: is well, no. no, there's a there's a there's some weaseling in there, right? There's some weaseling where it's like individual groups, blah blah blah, right? Like mm -hmm. I think there is definitely because. Because the truth is, Apple does have remote employees. <laughs> they, they do. Yeah, they do. They, do. Uh, they just are the exception. And, right? So, like, there's a question of, like, how blanket is this statement? But um, why I was disappointed with it is not... I think it's great that Tim Cook is in this memo saying, um, we get that there's a lot of benefit to not just working from home if you want to. Again, also something I should say up front. Not everybody is built for working at home, either mentally, uh, like they're just, they need to focus better, their physical workspace at home. Like you have to have a physical workspace at home that makes sense. And a lot of people don't have that. So having it be an option to work from home, I think is good. It's not possible to say that one is better than the other. It, it isn't a thing that you can just equivocally right. say, right? Yeah. So, but it, what he is saying is we recognize that a lot of you have found value in this and, and a lot of you have commutes and you have uh, found a better set of sort of like, it's better for your life and better for your health to not be commuting every single day. So we're going to, we're going to throw a couple of days on the pile and say, you don't have to come in those days. Plus we're going to give you a little uh, work from home allowance, which, you know, I, I use that. I, I could work from home whenever I chose essentially when I was working at IDG and I, you know, I didn't work from home all the time. I couldn't do my job that way, but there were times when I was working on something and I realized I needed to just be heads down on this thing for a day or two and I would do work from home and it was great. So I think that when he says a couple of weeks of working from home available as a benefit, essentially that that's good. So I, I get what this is. The, the disappointment I have is that not every job needs to be the old style job of you've got to come into an office and sit. I And I'm disappointed because I would have hoped that Apple learned over the last year that some of their corporate culture that is you have to be in the room. We're going to bump up against each other in the hallways and brilliant things are going to happen. That sort of serendipity fantasy that I believe is a fantasy because I think serendipity can happen in all sorts of places. It can happen in Slack channels. It can happen in video calls and it can happen at the lunchroom, you know, counter when you're getting some coffee and you bump into somebody. I think there's a little bit of fantasy there. I had hoped that the last year would have instructed Apple on the fact that some of its insistence on that one way of working, which is be in an office chair 
every day or three days a week is not necessary and that some jobs and some groups don't need to be that way. Now, I'm also not saying that companies can't tell their employees what to do. They can. The employee's recourse is to find another job. What I am saying, though, is that if Apple approaches this in, in this with this philosophy and this culture that comes from Steve Jobs, which is everybody's got to be in Cupertino, essentially. And, and they have other offices too, but you get my point. Everybody's got to be in, in the office in Cupertino. Um, what you're going to do if you're Apple is you're going to lose talent because some talent's not going to want to live in the Bay Area. It's not going to want to live with the cost of living in the South Bay. It's not, want to do a, it's not going to want to do an extreme commute in order to afford a place to live. It's not going to mo- uproot their family or uh, live in a tiny house with a long commute in order to work at Apple. And that's Apple's decision. But I will say, as somebody who hired remote people, I got way, way better people by willing, be willing to hire, by being willing to hire somebody mm-hmm. who was not mm-hmm. present. And they did great work. Mm-hmm. Not every job can be that, but some can. So my, my disappointment to this memo is more that it feels very one-size-fits-all. And it doesn't seem to have learned the lesson that some jobs don't need to have everybody working in the office all the time, Mm -hmm. because this memo is very much about for the people who are in the office all the time, you don't have to be in the office a couple of days a week. And that addresses something and is nice, actually. But there's other parts that I'm like, hmm, yeah, but I know for a fact that there are also jobs within Apple that are much more like what I used to do, where we had a really great team and half our team was not ever in the office except for like special events or offsites or things. And it was great. And, and you've learned presumably over the last year what groups those are. And yet I didn't, it's not in this memo. It doesn't mean it's not happening, but I didn't see in this some recognition that um, maybe that part of this uh, should be a lesson learned that maybe mm-hmm. there are some groups within Apple that it doesn't make sense to hire everybody and force them to be in Cupertino because um, it's really expensive in Cupertino and a lot of talented people aren't going to move. And maybe you could hire somebody somewhere else and make them not move and see them a couple of times a year, which I am a believer in, especially, you know, the younger your workforce is, the more online they are, the more capable they are, the more understanding they are of, you know, of Slack and Zoom meetings and stuff like that. Now, it's not for everybody. It's not for every group. So much of the conversation about this is, well, in my whatever, or in this experience I had, and like, I just want to say that every group is different. But I will also say that I have seen firsthand and through people I know that Apple's corporate culture of everybody needs to be here is still pretty strong and it leads to them having these some jobs and groups that everybody has to be in the office, even if all they're doing is sitting at their desk looking at a screen, and they could do that from anywhere. And I had hoped they had learned more of a lesson from it. This memo doesn't suggest that they did. Perhaps those individual groups did. And if so, then... Uh, then good because they should because I would imagine that Apple is going to lose talent uh, and, and this was true before the pandemic but it's going to accelerate Apple's going to lose some talent because lots of people don't want to live in Silicon Valley and and everything that comes with moving to and living in and commuting through Silicon Valley 
So The Verge obtained an internal letter sent to Apple management that detailed that the steps that they had taken were not enough for many employees and that um, the company's not being flexible enough and they want the policy to be rethought. Um, now that many people have obviously realized that permanent work from home not only works better for them at work, but also allows them to kind of better balance the lives that they want to live. They want that, especially when they're now looking at other companies in uh, the Bay Area tech scene who are allowing like permanent work from home um, schedules or have more flexible uh, policies. I will just say like I was surprised by the, the the fact that they did have a mixed approach. I kind of expected them to either say like we're going back to exactly how we are or it was going to be more flexible than this. Like I was surprised that they did that two day a week thing. The two weeks work from home policy thing just seems <laughs> so small. It's pointless to me. Like I, why two weeks? Like what is that? And that's what makes me raise an eyebrow at the whole memo because it 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 comes across a bit as again this is for everybody and yet you know it it isn't like it can't be like i would imagine that the way you really want this to work is you're a manager you've got an employee they're mostly yep. not in the office they do great work i don't care you've got yep. another employee when they're working from home their productivity drops i do care they need to come in right like that's that's how it should work mm-hmm. instead of it being like well you've got a, two weeks of not of of staycation <laughs> right like it's weird right you should depending on what you're doing you should have unlimited work from home or no work from home it really just depends on what the job is and who the person is so this this letter basically was coming from a large group of people inside of the company who now feel that the approach for them is not that this stance of being at work is best kind of works for them, it's kind of left them feeling uh-huh. a little alienated. And this, this letter that was kind of it was circulated internally and sent to Apple management, it asks for a bunch of things. Some of them are that work from home decisions should be the responsibility of each team rather than a company wide mandate. So this is what I was saying earlier, right? Like I I agree with you because we you know know it to be true that there are some people that work from home, but it seems like maybe the teams that are allowed to make that decision might be smaller than it could be. Um, and they're also asking for a company wide survey to be taken so they can actually get the understanding of the the group at large. Um, and that more consideration should be taken for those who are who are now less able to return to an office environment. Well, what, and what they're talking about here in this in this letter, which um, which people who listen to this probably have seen it. John Gruber basically um, demolished this in a post that he made that I thought was unfortunate. It's one of the um, the least favorite things he's ever written for me. Like yeah, I, me I think it was a real unfortunate, embarrassing post where he basically. Uh, seems to be defending the big the the giant company against their mean old employees, which is I think the wrong bad take. It's a bad mm-hmm. take. But I will I will grant this memo is bad and embarrassing. The way it's written is bad. Um, it, it's 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 bad. But <laughs> I will say this: um, cor- changing corporate culture is really hard. And that's what basically they're asking for is they're mm-hmm. saying, you know, hey, pandemic was a thing. And now that we're back, can we change the corporate culture? And I, I actually kind of think that it's hard to change corporate culture while you're away. <laughs> um, right. You're just trying to hold it together. And now this is sort of like Tim Cook's reopening memo, which is let's come back and we learn some things. And and I absolutely understand the idea that uh, this seems more of a blanket decision than maybe it should be. And that there are a bunch of groups that really should be given license. Here's the thing. 
people in charge of groups are going to look at Tim Cook's memo as permission to do it business as usual with this very slight variation, a very, very slight variation. Um, and that is not a recipe to reconsider or change corporate culture. And cor changing corporate culture is already so brutally hard. And I say this as somebody who spent years trying to haul a print magazine culture onto the web, right? Like, and everybody can agree but you know what? It's not just about the people. It's about the structure and it's about how people feel they're valued. And it's about how it's like permeates an organization, makes it very hard to change. Even Apple, right? Like that was Steve Jobs' greatest trick, arguably, when he came back was he had to not just build products, he had to change the culture um, and, they, and build uh, ways to reinforce the corporate culture like Apple University. So... I think what's going to the employee frustration that you see in this memo is, is they're saying, we think the pandemic has taught us an important lesson about how some of Apple's assumed uh, from Steve Jobs corporate culture decisions aren't accurate. And we would like management to really take a good look at what's best for the company and the workers of the company in terms of how work is, is, is done. Because the truth is, not all the parts of Apple really need to go back to being the way that they were. Mm -hmm. That we've learned that we can do this job in a very different way. And I would argue it's not just about the employees wanting to uh, not come back into work or not, not have a commute or you know have to come back home from Lake Tahoe where they've been living for the last year. But it's also about Apple being able to hire a much broader group of people because they could hire somebody anywhere uh, for those certain jobs where they can do that. Um, but I think there's just a disappointment here of, of an opportunity to revisit the corporate culture, not even to necessarily to tear it up, but to revisit it in a moment where there's enough that's gone on that you might actually be able to affect a little bit of change and say, oh, you know, when Steve Jobs said that James Thompson had to move from Ireland to Cupertino or he couldn't continue working on the Finder team, even though he'd been working on the Finder team just fine from Cork. Maybe that was not so great. And Apple missed out on not having James involved as one of their developers for the last 20 years because he's a very talented developer. And the only thing that was against him was that he wasn't going to move to California. Uh, so maybe this is a good opportunity for us to say, let's rethink things a little bit. Let's, let's, let's analyze this and determine where our culture maybe is off a little bit. And the Tim Cook memo can be seen by them, at least, as being a restatement of the status quo and say, we're not going to revisit this. Not in the way you think. We're not going to revisit this fundamentally. Fundamentally, if App Store Editorial, uh, which is just people writing and editing articles about apps, has to be every day in a building in Cupertino... <laughs> Uh, like that doesn't make sense. That's pretty much what we used to do at IDG and we had people all over the, the country and the world. Um, like maybe that's not great. Maybe we should rethink it. Maybe we should at least consider it. So I don't love the memo. There's a whole lot of, um, you know, we formally request that stuff in them. It's just, it's such a bad bit of bureaucracy and it's eye rolling, but I totally get the motivation behind it which is people who love Apple and work at Apple and have found that they find that Apple is better uh, 
with some of the lessons learned in the pandemic and they're feeling that this memo basically tosses away all those lessons in order to go back to something as close to the old way as possible. And I totally understand being disappointed by that. So I want to build on something that you said earlier and also like in referencing something that John put in his article, which is uh, that companies are not democracies, right? So that this idea that if people are unhappy about something, uh, they can request it, but they can't force a change. And I mean, I agree with that. Like companies are not democracies. I mean, they are companies, you know, you don't get paid to be a part of a democracy, right? Um, But I think it is up to the leaders of a company, like a democracy, to decide how much they want to listen to the people within it. Like, and if you have thousands of people telling you something, maybe listen, because they might have a point. You can choose not to agree, right? That's fine. That's actually your decision. But then you need to be comfortable living with that decision and accepting potential ramifications of it. And this idea of democracy seemed interesting to me because I think what you can draw from here, if we're going to get metaphorical with it, is a parallel to another system of power. So authoritarian governments... They can allow people to freely leave, right? It's not necessarily the same as dictatorship, but it's like, we're going to tell you what to do and you have to do it. And what happens in a lot of authoritarian government regimes is a huge talent drain of young and educated people who decide that they do not want to live in that country. They're going to go somewhere else and they're going to try and start a life outside. And that's right. what I that's what I mean when I say that Apple Apple has risk here too. Like yeah. a lot of a lot of people including in Gruber's post where he's basically punching down at employees and defending the big company um are saying, "Look, you signed up to work at Apple. You knew these were the uh rules, so live with it." It's like there's truth in that, right? Like they want to make a change from the inside, but it is true also that they signed up for it. Mm-hmm. And that if their employer tells them it's too bad this is the way it's going to be, they either need to, you know, like it or leave. The big picture is if you've got really talented people and they're going to leave, that's not great. And then right behind that is who do you replace them with? And now you're and when you grow, who are you going to hire? And now you're dealing with a post-pandemic workforce that is going to look less encouragingly on your insistence that people work people move to the Bay Area and three times a week commute in to an office in the South Bay in order to do the job. And that means you're going to hire, you're, you're, you've already cut yourself off from people who are never going to move to the Bay Area. But now you, there's a whole new strata of, of talented people. And keep in mind that a lot of these people are hiring. They are very talented tech workers. They got lots of options. And now so many other tech companies are going partially or fully virtual that the, the it becomes even harder for Apple to hire and especially to hire good people. And then the next step is then the rubber meets the road and Apple, somebody at Apple is like, oh, I want to hire this, this person over here and she's great, but she's not going to move from South Dakota. But she's really great and her job doesn't really need to be here and we've got Slack and it'll be fine and we got, you know, Cisco uh, meetings and uh, it'll be fine and I want to hire her. And what do they do? That's the other way this could go, is that uh, Apple's corporate culture changes from the bottom up, which is at the top, Tim Cook's like, we're all coming back to work. And at the bottom, they're like, I, 
I have to hire this person because they're very talented and my other options are not as good, but this person can't is not going to come here. And they have no leverage over that person. I mean, they've got limited leverage over that person. Some people will move. Some people won't. And it's like, do you want to hire that talented person or do you want to hire this less talented person? Or you found nobody else who is as good. Um, that's going to be hard for them too. So like this is, it cuts both ways, but you know, this isn't just about, oh, these, these employees are spoiled and they signed up for this, so they need to suck it up. It's also, if you look at it from Apple's perspective, a brain drain. I mean, you described it, the people leaving a country because that country is not conducive to what they want to do with their lives. Um, that's bad. And, um, and the pandemic has not made that uh, less of an issue for Apple that it already was an issue, but it has not made it less of an issue for Apple. It's made it more of an issue for Apple. And that's about retention and about hiring. We know all sorts of people who used to work at Apple and they left and they moved somewhere else and they're very happy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and that's part of the brain drain. You talk to people at Apple and some of it is about, it's a grind, it's hard work, it's brilliant, you know, it's very rewarding, but it's also hard work. You also talk to some people who are like, I just had, I just couldn't stay in California anymore. I couldn't stay in the Bay Area anymore. And, and that's, that's, you're, you're risking more of that. And believe it or not, Apple acts like it is the, the pinnacle, the big leagues, and that you have to work at Apple. And it's like, there is some truth to that, but also there are a lot of people in a lot of jobs at Apple where that's not true, (laughs) right? It's like, if you're designing Macs or iPhones or, uh, you know, anything like in the, in the core, it's probably true and I get it. But there's also a bunch of other stuff that that is is not true. And and so to see people who work at Apple or who used to work at Apple and made you see a lot of this too, made sacrifices like Michael Gartenberg, the analyst, was uh, pretty much outspoken about this like Gruber was. And, you know, but I know for a fact, like he took a job at Apple. He had to move. His whole life was in New Jersey. He had to move to California and he lived in California for as long as he worked at Apple. And the moment he left Apple, he moved back to New Jersey. And like, I can see from that person's perspective saying, look, I sacrificed in order to work at Apple. Why, why can't you? It's like fair enough. But from Apple's perspective, I'm saying, uh, that might be kind of dumb (laughs) to force everybody who wants to work there to sacrifice like that for jobs. Footnote for jobs that probably don't require it. Some do, some don't. This episode is brought to you by Public Sector Future from Microsoft. I love finding new podcasts to listen to. I'm sure you do too. If you're looking for a new show to listen to, why not check out Public Sector Future? It discusses real stories from public sector leaders who have been successful at driving change. You can hear firsthand experiences that challenge that, and challenges that users face and the lessons learned from it all. Throughout the series, they discuss technology and trends as well as cultural aspects of change like what we were just talking about. Host Olivia Neal digs deep into the uses of digital approaches to help public sector work better for those that it serves. She is the Director of Digital Transformation in Microsoft's worldwide public sector team. And before, Olivia spent her career in the Government of Canada and the Government of the UK. So public sector work, she knows a witchy speech. There's tons of interesting show topics, including mixed reality, rules as code, digital policing, digital strategy, digital access, and so much more with fantastic guests as well. So 
Um, I checked out an episode with Mark Polyphase, who is a professor of computer science at ETH Zurich and the director of science at Microsoft. Um, and this one was all focused on mixed reality. And it was super interesting to see, like to hear about how what we see currently as AR on our phones is like just this tiny step in the overall future of this technology. It was really interesting to hear someone who is deep in this stuff all the time and how they think about it as like, yeah, we can only see of it so much right now and there's so much more to grow from this. And they were talking about how uh, mixed reality devices can be utilized for tasks like um, showing instructions overlaid right in front of you and how this can help break down super complicated things. And they were talking about how uh, people in like the medical sector in the UK have been using that during during coronavirus. So like a doctor can basically instruct multiple juniors and multiple nurses at the same time by giving instructions because they can see them in mix in like mixed reality instead of needing to be in all these places. It was really fascinating stuff. So go and listen to it yourself. Go just uh, search for Public Sector Future wherever you get your podcasts. That's Public Sector Future, and we'll have a link in the show notes as well. Our thanks to Public Sector Future for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Let's do some hashtag ask upgrade questions. First one comes from Zach and Zach wants to know how much value have you as non-developers gotten from WWDC sessions this this year? Uh, is there any that you would recommend to people to check out? I'm going to point people to the WWDC page at Six Colors, where we we watched. You did a lot this year. It was really cool. I enjoyed we it. We brought in Stephen Hackett to join me and Dan. We watched all the sessions that we felt had value to people who are not developers to glean things from them, and we wrote those up. And those are all in those posts from Six Colors. So I would recommend starting there. And if any of those things seem worth diving into further, um, then go find those sessions and dive in. But uh, we did that work for you in in terms of if you're not a developer, uh, we tried to watch all this stuff and glean what we could from it. Yeah, I mean, for me, any sessions that I did watch, I typically would just watch the first kind of half because then the code stuff begins and it's too much for me. It's a lesson I learned in the 90s, actually, when I started going to WWDC, is as soon as the code comes out, you get out. (laughs) (laughs) Run! Gone. I used to be physically leave the room, and now it's just close that window and and move to the next session. But yeah. I think the one I enjoyed the most personally was Shortcuts for macOS. It was just just really interesting. It's a great session. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, the one that I thought was brilliant uh, and entertaining is called Discover Built-in Sound Classification and Sound Analysis yep. because it's got an amazing demo. It is literally yep. using machine learning sound analysis to uh, every sound that gets made in the room, it recognizes what it is. And like he's talking and it says voice and he turns on music and it says music and you're like, oh, well, that's cool. It can tell the difference between voice and music. And then, uh, but then the drums come and it's a guitar and then it shows guitar and then the drums come in and then it shows that it's recognizing the drums. And then the vocal comes in and it comes in with singing and like it knows the details of what's in the music. And then he turns that off and, you know, he, he pours himself some tea and it it recognizes the sound of the water pouring or the tea pouring, and then when he when he puts in some sugar and and clinks against the glass, it recognizes the glass clinking. And I sat there thinking, this is amazing. It has great accessibility possibilities, and also they showed there's a great demo of it running on shortcuts on the Mac with a folder full of of videos, 
And basically this shortcut says, take this folder full of videos and find a clip that contains the sound of a cowbell. It's wild. And you press the button and it goes, bloop, here's the file. And that file is one of the presenters roller skating while playing the cowbell, which is also hilarious. It's hilarious. So yep. that was my that was my most entertaining session. And you know, you're not going to probably write an app that uses the uh, sound analysis APIs, but that's okay. It was a, a really, uh, really fun session. So I like that. Yeah, that was a uh, the screenshot that you put in your post was really fun. I'll include a link in the show notes to uh, the six colors right up on both of those, which obviously will have links to the session videos as well in case you want to check those out. Yep. Brantz wants to know, Mike, did you end up using a pop socket and not MagSafe so far with your iPhone 12 Pro Max? Uh, The answer is yes. I've stuck to MagSafe on the phone itself. No case the entire time. And I know that uh, pop socket have MagSafe compatible pop sockets now. Um, but two things. One, I'm fine uh, with how I've been using it and not using MagSafe. It's not a problem for me. I still have all of my docks that have lightning connectors on them and my phone goes great onto those. Um, and uh, I've seen mixed reports of those MagSafe, the magnetic MagSafes not working so well just straight onto the back of the glass of the phone. Like it's better if you have them on a case. Right. And I don't want to wear a case, which is the whole point. Uh, Buzz asks, I'm planning on doing a clean install when I upgrade to a new MacBook Pro, hopefully not too far in the future. What is the best thing for me to do to ensure that I don't lose any files in the process? Uh, Well, I mean, a clean install, that's sort of what you're trying to do is lose your files. Otherwise, you should just use Time Machine or Migration Assistant, right? Um, Uh... Although you can migrate, I mean, you migrate from a backup is a thing to do that's not quite a clean install. It's a clean install and then it puts back the files that it thinks you need. That would probably be my number one, would be do a time machine backup, wipe, install, and then restore from the time machine backup That that by a migration assistant. That does a pretty good job of, you know, Apple is copying over the files that you that are yours, that are personal, um, but not anything that the system doesn't need. And... So it will be cleaner. It will still migrate a bunch of old stuff that you could probably get rid of. But short of, you know, manually pruning your preferences folder and stuff, I think that's probably the safest way to do it. I just did that, in fact, with my my wife's MacBook Air. It had a giant freak out. Um, I had to reboot it from recovery. It failed to reboot from recovery. It went into internet recovery. And then it failed to update on internet recovery. So I had to do right. a... I had to do a special recovery where it recovered to Big Sur, which meant it went from Mojave to Big Sur. Um, and at this point, I, I basically I erased it and then installed Big Sur on it. Um, and she had a time machine backup that runs every day, so it was fine. And I restored, so I wiped it, installed Big Sur, and then I migrated from the time machine backup. And she got all her files back. She was on Big Sur. And she had to log into some stuff and all that, but basically lost nothing. That's the safest approach. And I think that's good enough, honestly. I think that you don't, if all you're trying to avoid is sort of like an overlay update and you want to start that from scratch, that's the way to do it. I mean, I'm not really an authority on this as such, but I would just use Migration Assistant. Like, Yeah, I mean, it. it Migration Assistant, 
works when you're moving from computer to computer, but the time machine aspect of it means it works if you're wiping. So if you're upgrading to a new MacBook Pro, you know, use Migration Assistant, right? Like have mm-hmm. one one device next to the other, ideally like close to each other or on Ethernet or something like that because you're going to be transferring a lot of files. And uh, the Migration Assistant will take what it needs and leave the rest. And that's the way. And uh, in my experience, you don't lose stuff when you do that. It's, it's Migration Assistant's gone really... It's good. It does a good job. All right. Next up comes from Jimmy. Jimmy wants to know, do you think Apple should support dashboard-style widgets on the Mac desktop next year? Yes. I. Ooh. Oh, here's the problem with widgets is, is I don't know what the right thing to do is on the Mac for widgets. Like, they're pointless in Notification Center, I find, because first off, I don't want to use Notification Center. And second, they're completely out of sight and out of mind. Mm -hmm. The whole point of widgets on iPad and iPhone is that they're right there. And you, you know, when you go to that screen, you see them. What's the equivalent of that on the Mac? I guess it's the desktop. So yeah, I feel like having a widget layer on the desktop or hovering over the desktop um, would be nice because i do think out of sight out of mind is a problem that's how i felt about dashboard too is some people love dashboard but i always felt like i never thought to look at dashboard and glanceability means that i can glance and see it and not like hit a keyboard shortcut in order to see it so that would lead me to believe that yeah there probably should be a visible layer that's just out um you can call it on the desktop but maybe it's floating you know and it can float at the top or float at the bottom or however you want to float those things i think that would be pretty good my other hesitation here is if Apple decides at some point here to go all the way with iPad multitasking and do something that's more like a floating window system, one of the great unexplored questions is what's beneath the floating windows? Like, is it just a wallpaper? Is it a desktop? Do you see the like, app icons back there or something that kind of doesn't make sense but i i say this because if you could attach an ipad to a big display and have a like a wallpaper and a bunch of floating windows could you put widgets back on the background too i don't know it it, and, and if you could this is a conversation that apple today would probably have about the mac and the ipad together Right, which is like, mm. how do we want this to work? How do we want win- widgets to be presented on the desktop of a windowed interface? Because we'll want it to do it the same way in both places, maybe. Um, and so that gives me a little hesitation. But in general, I'm just going to... Uh, complexity aside, yes, I would like to be able to add widgets on my Mac and see them without having to do a swipe or hit a keyboard shortcut. That would be nice. I would love this because... I don't put files on my desktop. Um, I'm, this is no judgment. I just don't do it. I have a couple of folders that are there, but I, you know, one of them is just an alias to another folder, right? And I don't really use them. So my desktop on my Mac is just nothing. So why not put widgets there now? So at least if I use the trackpad gesture to show me my desktop, I can get some information because right now it's just a picture. So I would love th- right. I would love to put widgets there personally. Um, I understand why dashboard went away. Like dashboard had its time in the sun. It was time for dashboard to leave. 
But now widgets are back, baby, big time, yeah. right? And so I, I want to have them in a better way, like to be used better on my Mac. Right. It's now, you know, Apple has deemed my iPhone and my iPad screen good enough for widgets. What about my Mac home screen? You know? And I'll throw in, um, they could also make widgets available in the menu bar. Yeah, little apps. Uh, another another Mac-like option, right? Like, what if I have a weather widget, put a little weather icon in the menu bar, and I click on it, and I see the widget? That would be a, a way that you could do a Mac spin on it where maybe the weather bar is not an icon. Maybe you could put the temperature up there or, mm-hmm. or a little mini forecast up there in the menu bar, and then you click on it, and you get the widget. You could extend the widget interface to have a menu bar component. There are a bunch of things they could do. Um, but I, I agree. I would like them to do something because the only time I ever used dashboard widgets was using that trick where you could like drag them out when you were in the middle of the transition, you like press the dashboard button to close it, but you're already clicking and dragging. There was a way you could basically sneak them out of the dashboard layer and onto the desktop layer. And that's the only time I ever really used dashboard widgets because I never hit the F key to get the dashboard to show. I just out of sight, out of mind with me. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't want I don't want that. And that's why I don't use widgets on the Mac today. Same reason. It's just, I don't see them. And I'm not, I don't like Notification Center. I don't like that whole place over there. I don't want to, I don't want to see it. I don't want to go there. Last question comes from Starling. Do you think the improvements to Swift Playgrounds are a stepping stone for Xcode for iPad? Or do you think that Apple wants coding on the iPad to stay somewhat limited to a simpler learning environment of Playgrounds? I think the problem with coding on the iPad is that there are so many complexities in Xcode that go back a long way, and you have to have compilers, you have to support all sorts of different kinds of code, you know, C, Objective-C, like there's lots of different stuff that goes into Xcode. Xcode is very complex and includes stuff that Apple would have to run on the iPad that I'm not sure Apple wants to run on the iPad. So I think... Anything is possible. My guess is that Apple wants to evolve Swift Playgrounds into a full-featured coding environment on the iPad for the next generation of apps. Yeah, when the time is right to say we're all good with Swift and Swift UI now, you know. Yeah, I think I think well, and you can do. I mean, honestly, they're sort of almost already there. They will probably need to not call it playgrounds anymore. They'll mm-hmm. probably need to actually call it something else. But I think Apple's goal with it is that um, it will become more common to write new apps just using Swift and Swift UI, and those can be done on the iPad. But if you want the legacy of like using the old stuff, using Objective-C, using other stuff like that, and having all of that weight of Xcode, I could see them just saying, that's why you have a Mac. That's over there. But what we're doing, you know, so they are they are arguably building their next generation um, app development environment in public on the iPad. That's this simplified environment that's just using Swift. Um I know that's frustrating to people who are who would like to be able to use and, and unrealistic for a long time because there's going to be legacy code base uh, mm-hmm. that's not using Swift. So what do they do about that? I don't know. Maybe they could go down that path. They just haven't yet. I hope they do, but I could see them just saying, no, you know, this is just for the future and it's for these idealized apps that are just in Swift and that's it. 
but you know they they have the ability to do you know virtualization and they could put you know they could put all the all the old stuff in a in a box that was locked down and but you could still use it like they could do a lot of work and make xcode um work on the ipad but i feel like that there's there's also a lot of security issues there it's a complex system and i could see why they're hesitant to do that so you know i think it's going to become more full featured to answer starling um more full featured um but it's an open question about whether apple is content at being this sort of like swift only environment or whether they really have some goal to make it xcode on the ipad and i i think the more they add to Swift Playgrounds, the less encouraged I am that they're actually going to do Xcode for iPad, if that makes sense, because mm-hmm. they're taking measures in their existing thing to co- kind of do half of what, you know, of that. And it seems like they're kind of blunting the fact that the other thing is not there. If you'd like to send in a question for us to answer on the show, just send out a tweet with the hashtag AskUpgrade. That's the name of the show. Or just use question mark AskUpgrade in the RelayFM members' Discord. Jason, would you like to tell listeners of Upgrade a little bit about another show here on RelayFM? Uh, Sure. How about Parallel? I remember when Shelly Brisbane, the host of Parallel, pitched Parallel. To us, it was in Austin, Texas, where she mm-hmm. lives, and we were there. Um, she was a regular guest on the uh, upgrade or not upgrade. What was what was my other podcast called? Download. Podcast download. Okay. Download. She was a regular <laughs> guest on the Download podcast, which is uh, dead. R.I.P. Download. Um, anyway, so she did bring Parallel to Relay FM, uh, and I think you'll like it. It is a tech podcast, but it also has accessibility sprinkles, as Shelley puts it. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, the intersection of tech and accessibility. Good show. Shelly's great. She's a pro and it's a good podcast. You should listen. Relay.fm slash parallel or just yep. search for parallel in your podcast app of choice. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, our sponsors for this week's episode. That is the Public Sector Future Podcast, Squarespace, and Hello. And of course, thank you to uh, the people who support us directly with Upgrade Plus. If you would like longer ad-free versions of every episode of Upgrade, just go to getupgradeplus.com and you can sign up right now. Uh, If you'd like to find Jason online, you can go to sixcolors.com and he is at Jasonel, J-S-N-E-L-L. I am at iMike, I-M-Y-K-E. Oh, hang on a second. Do you hear that, Jason Snell? It sounds like... The crashing of waves? It sounds like beach sounds. Wait, is it the sound of summer? Why, yes, Jason Snell. It's the summer of fun! See you next week, everybody. 